Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. It's January 2022, and to start the new year off right, I interview Valerie Beck, one of the world's leading experts on the business of chocolate. Seriously. Through her business, Chocolate Uplift, Valerie serves as a consultant to craft chocolate makers all over the world. For many years before that, she was CEO of a tour company that offered chocolate tours of the many fascinating places where chocolate is made, and she's a college classmate of mine. I invited Valerie to the podcast both because she's an energetic and inspirational speaker and because her insights about the business of chocolate making raise important questions of public policy about what it means to ethically manufacture any sort of product in a fast-moving global marketplace. I hope that you'll learn something interesting about craft chocolate while also gaining some insights about the many tough decisions that farmers, manufacturers, and consumers must confront as part of a multi-billion dollar global supply chain. Valerie, chocolate. I thought I knew what it was until I met you and you started teaching me about the chocolate business and how chocolate is made. What the heck is it? it? I thought it was just something you paid 50 cents for in the grocery store, but it turns out it's this very sophisticated food. It's got this global market. What is it? How do you make it? Start us out on the basics here on Chocolate 101. Right. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me and for asking. Chocolate is life. Chocolate is food of sustenance, of love. Chocolate loves us. We love chocolate. It's a superfood. It's health food. You know, the only problem is if we add junk, it's junk. If we do not add junk, it's paradise. So there's really only one ingredient that you need to make chocolate, and it is cacao. Now, let me stop you there on pronunciation. I saw that word in writing as you emailed me and explained the chocolate business to me. I I didn't know how to say it, and so I sort of tried different things out, and you taught me it's kapow. like the, the Batman cartoon, but that's not the same as cocoa, the stuff that goes in your hot chocolate drink. Before we go a little further, what's the, people are going to think it's the same thing. What's the difference? Right. You know, it's a great question. And indeed, cacao rhymes with kapow. And I get that sort of visual image of the old cartoon as well. Bam! Hoo! Kapow! So cacao, C-A-C-A-O, rhymes with kapow. And cacao and cocoa are sometimes used interchangeably and sometimes not because we want to make it as confusing as possible. I get that. I'm so a lawyer. The, I'm there. Yeah, I'm good with exactly. Confusion. And I'm a, an ex lawyer, yes. as you know. Some some say recovered attorney. I don't think of it as a <laughs> disease. I think of it as as a background that I'm very grateful to have had, and I'm also grateful to have followed my heart into cacao and chocolate. I, I get to have had it all, law and chocolate. And well, I, get, so, I get some cacao, and what do I do with it then? I get For one thing, where does cacao come from? And then what does a chocolate maker of some kind do with it once they get a collection of it? Right. So, oh my goodness, David, if we were in person or on video, I would show you my cacao pod from Ecuador that I'm holding. It looks kind of like it's about the size of a football, an American football. The one I've got is a little bit smaller, a little bit on the petite yeah. side. I was going like to say me. eggplant, but it's uh, that's a pretty stout looking object you've got there. Yeah. Comparing it to an eggplant, I think is also, that makes perfect sense. And so the cacao pod is the fruit of the cacao tree. And the trees grow in Central and South America. They grow now also in Africa and Asia. Picture the equator and then picture about 20 degrees higher or lower. That's a very, very rough sort of 
cut, but chocolate likes that tropical rainforest environment. Cacao likes that tropical rainforest environment. So if you were to open, yeah, open the cacao fruit, you would see this white, pulpy, delicious fruit inside. If you were to then take a segment of that fruit, it's got maybe about 40 segments, depending on size. But if you were to take one segment and maybe suck off the delicious fruit or discard it to be used as fertilizer to help the rest of the trees, you would find a seed inside that fruit as we find seeds inside fruit. Well, we call that a cacao seed. And then through the sort of mysteries and typos of time and cross-cultural language (laughs) attempts, cacao, the word sort of turned into cocoa. So in Spanish, it's cacao. And the ancients called chocolate chocolatl or different sort of variations on that term. And so today, whether we call it cacao or cocoa, when we mean the seed of the fruit of the cocoa tree, that means the same thing. And then as you sort of alluded to, if we think of if we think of sort of the more industrial versions of cacao and chocolate that we that we see today, sometimes we might use cacao for the good stuff <laughs> and cocoa for the industrial stuff. So that's why the same words can mean the same or different things, but ultimately cacao is the seed of the fruit of the cocoa tree and it's where we make all chocolate from. I went to the grocery store in anticipation of our interview and looked on the shelf and I saw a bunch of what purport to be chocolate bars there that have a bunch (laughs) of stuff in them that ain't cacao. Uh, There are brand names I'm familiar with. There are companies I'm familiar with. They look like chocolate, but it ain't just cacao that's in there. And somewhere between the tree and the person that removes the fruit we've been talking about to the grocery store on the corner, a bunch of stuff happens. What's the stuff? (laughs) Oh, you put your finger on it. There is stuff. Here's where two paths diverge in the wood. The path to artisanal chocolate and the path to industrial chocolate. The industrial chocolate path, as you've noted, ends up with all manner of non-pronounceable or parenthetical (laughs) ingredients on the ingredients list. The artisanal path leads to typically just two ingredients, cacao and sugar. That's all you need. And again, you don't really even need the sugar. You could have a 100% chocolate bar with just cacao. But typically, we like to sweeten our chocolate. That's kind of the the trend of our era, you might say. The ancients did not sweeten theirs. They had chili peppers and herbs and other plants. It was medicinal. It was healthful. I'm sure it was still scrumptious. But for our artisanal chocolate today, the base of it, you might say, is simply cacao and sugar. And then if you want to add fun flavors, spices, herbs, nuts, caramel, anything, you can go with that. But one of the pillars of what you might call the craft chocolate movement, craft as in handcrafted, crafted with love, one of the pillars of our craft chocolate community is purity. So not adding synthetic ingredients, not adding even GMO sugar, but sticking with organic cane sugar, which is from a plant. (laughs) And so... Keeping an eye, yes, on the ingredients list, I believe, is one of the crucial things that we want to do if we want to know if we're on the artisanal chocolate path or the industrial chocolate path. A couple of quick questions there about ingredients, and this is just stuff I've seen in the grocery store that I'm curious about. I see the label milk chocolate on a lot of things. Does that mean you pour milk in the mix, or does it have some other meaning to a chocolate maker than what it may mean to David in the grocery store? (laughs) You got it. Well, David in the grocery store is 100% right. Milk chocolate simply means that milk has been added. So when we talk about needing just one or two ingredients, cacao and sugar, you've made dark chocolate. 
If you add milk, and it typically needs to be in powder form because chocolate doesn't like moisture. It doesn't like water or liquid milk or liquid honey or anything of that nature. So usually you'll pulverize your ingredient that you'll be adding if it was a liquid originally. But yes, if you add milk, you've got milk chocolate. And is there a right or wrong? Personally, if it's quality, it's right, in my opinion. Fair enough. So yeah, milk chocolate simply means exactly, you've added milk. And you've mentioned the ancients a couple of times. Who are they? Are they the Aztecs, the Greeks, the Romans? What culture or cultures do we have to thank for the for the idea of taking a cow fruit and making something tasty out of it? Genius, right? I know. <laughs> so yes, the Aztecs were chocolate masters. They really raised chocolate to a very high art. It's said that Emperor Montezuma of the Aztecs would drink 10 golden goblets filled with molten chocolate before any sort of important endeavor. And by the way, at that time, during the Aztec reign, chocolate was worth more than gold. So yes, he would drink the chocolate in golden goblets, but he apparently cared more about the cacao than the golden goblets. Wow. Those then as, yeah, as Dixie cups to him. He had gold all over the place, but cacao was almost priceless. It was used as currency in those days. But the Aztecs were not the first people we know of to enjoy chocolate. We know that the Maya before them were chocolate experts. We know that the Inca in South America were chocolate experts, and we know there were a people called the Olmecs, another pre-Columbian people in the Americas, who were also cultivating cacao and chocolate 5,500 years ago. Now, what I find so fascinating about some of this ancient, as you might call it, history, is that it seems to stop there, but where did it really start? So, for example, there's a lot of evidence to indicate that the Olmec people did not originate in Mexico or Central or South America, but in Africa. So then the question for me becomes, did they bring cacao seeds with them? Did they find cacao seeds there? Inquiring minds want to know how far back does it go? So if I imagine people prior to 5,500 years ago who did not have chocolate, my heart goes out to those those ancestors, you might yeah. say, wherever and whenever it got started. We know that 5,500 years ago in the Americas, people were enjoying chocolate. And we know now that it's a, a global love. Fascinating. That's uh, so many things have such long histories in our world. It sounds like chocolate is, is no different. Uh, moving fast forward to the present, I saw the fruit you had in your hand, the eggplant round shape there, and described the process of, of getting it ready to make an edible chocolate with. It strikes me that you can do that in a couple of ways. You can have your own farm and go out and pluck it yourself, or you can have sort of a industrial, modern, high-tech farming operation. Which is more prevalent? Is one better or worse than the other from different perspectives? How do we do it as a chocolate-eating society, this initial step of harvesting and then making usable the cacao fruit? Oh my goodness. Again, David, you've put your finger on something so crucial and fascinating because whether the cacao will ultimately take the artisan path or the industrial path, the farm's look very similar in some very interesting ways. For example, most cacao farms around the world, whether they are 
supplying the artisan supply chain or the industrial supply chain, which the chains themselves are, are separate from the get-go, but the look might be similar to the casual glance, to the casual eye. And that's because most cacao farms are smallholder farms in Africa, in Brazil, in and when I say Africa, typically that's that's Ivory Coast and Ghana, where 70% of the world's cocoa beans are grown. Some farmers might have 20 trees. Some farmers might have less than an acre. So the multi-billion dollar global chocolate supply chain rests on or grows from smallholder farmers. And the cacao pod that I've got here with me was harvested by hand as all cacao pods, whether the cacao will go industrial or artisanal, harvested by hand. And after the pods are plucked ripe, and by the way, they're beautiful colors of red or orange or green or yellow, tropical fruit, look, tropical fruit fashion. When those pods are plucked ripe, it's done by hand. Then they're opened by hand, either with a machete in in some cultures or by cracking them on a rock or on another pod in other regions. That's all done by hand. The fruit is removed by hand. The seeds are removed from the fruit by hand. So, wow, to say that chocolate making is a labor-intensive project, you get the idea. So after all of that hand harvesting is done, now we can definitely start to see where artisan and industrial supply chains diverge. We could see it in the forest even before that because artisanal cacao will grow in a biodiverse ecosystem with maybe mango trees and banana trees, other trees of the rainforest. Industrial cacao, sadly, does not get the benefit of a biodiverse environment, which means a lack of soil nutrients. It means prevalence of Roundup or other herbicides or pesticides. So if you're looking with a keen eye, you could spot those differences. In any case, once the cacao has been harvested, oh, do our paths diverge. The artisanal destined cacao will go into very carefully organized fermentation houses. Cacao, chocolate, is a fermented food. Oh, think of so many of the foods and beverages we love. I don't know if you're drinking coffee today, but it's fermented. I don't know if you had any wine in recent days, but those grapes are fermented. Bread, cheese, beer, so many things we adore are fermented. So is chocolate, especially if it is made from artisanally handled cacao beans. Those beans will be fermented under specific conditions of heat and time, and this might take up to a week. Then those cocoa beans will be dried, and that can happen in different fashions. For example, if you're in a very humid area, drying is hard. And so you'll sure. need to get some type of technology, whether that is louvered ventilators in your fermentation house to keep that airflow going. Or if you're in a sunny, if you're in a sunny climate, you can let those beans get a suntan in the sun and dry out in that way. So many steps happen on the cocoa farm for artisanal specialty beans. After the harvesting, we go into the post-harvest phases of fermentation and drying. Then the cocoa beans will go to our chocolate maker friends for yet more exciting adventures. And then if we visit our industrial cocoa bean friends, the industrial cocoa beans sometimes will skip the fermentation step or the beans will be fermented in a way that's not cohesive to the batch. So imagine if your wine or your coffee were made of product that was fermented not in a consistent fashion, but that ended up giving flavors that were inconsistent because fermentation unlocks flavor and it unlocks health benefits. So a consistent ferment is crucial 
if you want quality flavor. Our industrial cocoa beans don't always get that opportunity for a consistent ferment or for any ferment. Sometimes they're not dried. And if you've got a food product that's got moisture, are you thinking mold? Are you thinking vermin? Sure. Yes. Yeah. It's not what you want on your food, mold or vermin, but it's what we see on industrial cacao. If you were to open an industrial cacao sack when it lands at usually the port of Philadelphia, that's actually the uh, the port that sees the most import because who's in Pennsylvania? Are Hershey friends? Ah, of course, yes. <laughs> If you were to open an industrial cacao sack at the Port of Philadelphia, and if you were to open an artisanal cacao sack, these often come into the ports of Oakland or Miami, or they'll be shipped air direct to wherever your chocolate-making facility is located. Oh, you would see such difference at the artisanal cocoa. If you open the artisanal cocoa sack, you'll see clean cocoa beans. I'm holding one up for you now, David. They look like almonds, just like nice sort of semi-flattened (laughs) <laughs> little sure, yeah. little almonds, yep. But if you open an industrial sack, you'll see the mold, the vermin. Even though there are big companies that at the export end will spray the beans with a patented concoction. Here's the lawyer in me. I like reading patents. Mm-hmm. I, I truly do. They'll spray the beans with a patented concoction to help stop wild fermentation and to help kill vermin and mold. It's not always even successful. So that gives you an idea of what happens before the cocoa beans even leave their country of export. That's fascinating. And it, it reminds me of a concept I've, I've seen you mention in your in your literature and that we've talked about as you explain your business, this concept of ethical chocolate. And it, it sounds like some of the things you're describing about the initial agricultural work and then the export-import of it tie into that. Can you help our listeners understand sort of what you mean by that idea of ethical chocolate and how it relates to the practical issues about making chocolate bars that we've been discussing? Yes, thank you for the opportunity to speak on that. One of the other very large differences that you would see on specialty cacao farms compared with cocoa farms that are growing beans for the industrial market is who is doing the work. On the industrial farms, tragically, monstrously, in my opinion, dreadfully, unethically, you will see child laborers and forced laborers doing that work. And it's not the case of, you know, kids helping their parents on the farm after school. Personally, I believe there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what the family wants to do, that's how the next generation can learn the learn the biz, right? But what we see in Ivory Coast and Ghana is due to poverty and other challenges, we see kids who are trafficked or taken away from their families, not going to school, not getting any sort of loving home environment or any sort of education, but rather they're forced to carry machetes that are sometimes longer than their little 10-year-old arms. They're forced to spray off-patent Chinese glyphosate onto the the plants and, and without any protective gear. It's a very Uh, a very powerful chemical, as we know. And so the presence of child labor and forced labor on industrial supplying cocoa farms is something that the big brands know about and that they promise they're going to clean up, but they keep shifting the date. So back in 2005, when this story first actually broke through filing of a lawsuit, people had known about it, right? Because since European contact with the Americas, cacao has been a colonial 
product for the West. So it wasn't a secret so much as it wasn't in the news. But in 2005, a lawsuit was filed by six formerly trafficked child slaves who grew up, came to America, and sued under the alien tort statute. And so that case was filed in 2005, and big news media broadcasters picked it up. So the big companies said, you know, we're aware, and we're going to clean up our act by 2012. Well, that date came and went, and they said, you know, we meant 2019. Now they're saying 2025. The pattern I'm seeing is one of no accountability. And so one of the things that I always love to do when I hear about a tragic situation is think about what can I do? Do I just have to accept it because there's nothing I can do? Or can I find a way to be part of the solution? So one of the reasons I love working in ethical cacao and chocolate as a distributor, consultant, and educator is that we've set up these alternative supply chains of specialty cacao. And if you were to visit the cacao farm where this pod comes from in Ecuador, for example, you would find that adults are doing the work. Kids are going to school or playing or doing whatever, doing whatever kids should be doing. And you would find that instead of chemical inputs, we've got organic inputs so that the so that the soil stays healthy just as families stay healthy. So a big part of ethical cacao and chocolate means who's doing the work. Do we have well-paid growers or do we have some terrible human rights abuses? A fascinating description of the sort of human consequences of this elaborate supply chain for chocolate. I appreciate you walking me through all that. Other question. So you're a chocolate consultant. You have your own chocolate consulting business. How did you get to be a chocolate consultant is a question people often ask, and that story is a fascinating one. Can you tell us how you came to be where you are today in the global chocolate business? Yes, I have been a chocolate maniac since I discovered milk chocolate at age four, and I wondered why is there not chocolate in all of my food and drink? Why have we been wasting time with non-chocolate food and beverage for the first four years of my, of my existence in, in this life? So from that moment, I was not only in love with the flavor of chocolate and the feeling of chocolate, but I truly wanted to know where does it come from? How did the chocolate get into the milk? What's it all about? And so just as some people might have various hobbies and pursuits. <laughs> Chocolate was always one of mine. So fast forward, age 19, I was on my study abroad trip. I left our class at Harvard for one semester to go to the Sorbonne. And that's where the idea found me to start the first chocolate tour company in the world. And I wasn't even sure what that was at first, but I realized that I loved walking the streets of Paris after class and eating all the chocolate and croissant and gelato that I could find. And that I started bringing friends along to let them learn. And we would talk with store managers and chocolatiers. And it was fun to learn and taste and enjoy. So that was the first business that I started when I left the law. Fast forward again. That sure. was also 2005. Yeah, 2005, I started Chicago Chocolate Tours. And I had such a fun 10-year run with that business. By the end, we were in four cities with 50 employees. So we were a solid little, small, successful business. Our mission was uplift through chocolate. So that means we educated people about fine and craft chocolate and that we shared peaks behind the scenes at bakeries and chocolate shops. So it was a two-hour walking party of 
fun and information and deliciousness. The health benefits of chocolate, we mentioned those at the beginning and then we got off on some of the social issues, but honestly, my whole life I've heard people say, don't eat too much chocolate, it makes you fat, David. And I've taken that to heart and tried not to eat too much chocolate. I assume if I just eat a whole bunch of mass-produced chocolate bars, that advice may well hold true. But it sounds like there's another glorious alternative path where I can eat more chocolate and I won't just get fat. Can you help me find the path so I can get this health without being you know, twice the size I am now? If you eat the right chocolate, I find you can eat all the chocolate you want. And because cacao is a natural appetite suppressant, instead of commercial food items where craveability quote is built in and you want to eat more and more with quality chocolate you sort of find your own natural stopping point which for some of us like me is never and that's okay too but it doesn't hurt us it only helps us I find and so this actually will also help me answer not only your health question but tie up the the rest of your previous question after the chocolate tours closed I thought well what else can I do to be in chocolate and to help other people enjoy chocolate? So because I had met so many chocolate makers and bakers and growers and just people throughout the chocolate supply chain, I decided to become a distributor. I knew stores that needed to have the best chocolate bars on their shelves, restaurants and bakeries that needed to have the best chocolate in their kitchens, and I knew growers and chocolate makers who wanted to get their products to exactly those spots. And so I took my relationships, I guess you could say, and my knowledge and transformed the business into distribution and consulting. And, you know, one more just sort of, I think, cute word on that. Some of my clients call me chocolate auntie. And at first I thought, wow, yeah, that means I'm old. <laughs> but that's okay. I accept. And I love that. I love that to them. Auntie means someone they can trust, someone who's old and so has wisdom or at least experience. <laughs> and someone who cares about their best interests. So that's I don't know about the old part. I think it just means that you're the relative <laughs> they have that gives them the good stuff. Like the one that gives them cookies, you're the one that gives them chocolate. So go with that. Don't focus on the, the good part of that. Don't worry about the age I thing. I like that interpretation. I'm there I for like you. That. I like that. Thank you, David. And, and the health, if I may say, is there for you too. How to know if you're getting health benefits from chocolate? Two things, really, that I recommend you consider. One is stepping away from the industrial chocolate. It will not give you the health benefits that we read about in the media, the heart protection, the anti-stroke, anti-dementia uh, anti protection, the enhanced circulation, the iron, phosphorus, the, the potassium, magnesium, all the good things in chocolate. The reason that industrial chocolate doesn't give you that is... First of all, because it doesn't contain much cacao. Your average industrial bar on the shelf is only 10% cacao, whereas when you see artisanal bars, you'll see much higher percentages. Now, even if you do see a, let's say, premium level industrial bar that's maybe at 70%, a nice high percentage, if that bar contains artificial ingredients or unpronounceables or various lab synthetics, those are wiping out your health benefits, which were probably killed at that irradiation step and, and the toxic chemical spray step that the cacao already underwent. So to get health benefits from chocolate, you may wish to step away from the industrial chocolate. And then the other thing I recommend that you 
look for is percentage because to get the full complement of health benefits from your artisanal cacao, typically you want to go 70% or higher. Now, does that mean I have anything against 50% bars or no, I love it all. But here's what I do. I have a maybe about a half a teaspoonful of cocoa nibs. I've got some for you here too. Cocoa nibs are simply a rough cut of the ground up cocoa bean. And you can, yeah, you can buy them already ground or you could chop up your own cocoa beans. But I sprinkle some of these little health nuggets onto my grapefruit, banana, or oatmeal in the morning. I'm getting so many health benefits from cacao nibs because they're the pure cacao. Nothing has been added. If we stay close to the bean, <laughs> that's where the health is. And then if I maybe am tasting some bars, I might start in the morning with some 70% and higher, let more of those health benefits soak in. And then if I'm tasting some milk chocolate bars or lower percentage bars later, no problem. I've already got the health benefits from my breakfast. There you go. You've got uh, <laughs> we have social responsibility and good health on top of that. It's hard to hard to beat that combination. I know your field of expertise is chocolate, and that's what you've worked with for so many years now. But you're also a thoughtful observer of the modern scene. Can we learn things from the study of the chocolate manufacturing process and the role that ethical chocolate decisions have in that is sort of a model for our thinking about other issues that we confront in our modern world as we make choices and make decisions about what to buy, what to sell, who to do business with, that kind of thing. I think you're absolutely right. Every individual and every family has 100% choice over where we spend our money. And if we spend our money to support practices that we don't believe in, we're just generating, generating more of what we don't want. If we spend our money in places that uphold our values of human rights or environmental conservation, then we're voting for more of that. And so whether we're using our dollars to vote for the chocolate we want or the other food items we want or the transportation practices that we want or whatever it is that we're buying, the garment industry is another big one to look at. We get to choose where we spend our money. And I agree that if we look at chocolate as a portal into that idea that we get to create the world we want. We don't have to just accept what's in front of us. We can say, no, I'd rather go in another direction. We can use our buying power as a really meaningful way to see the world that we want. A very empowering message. That's a, it's a very interesting lesson to come away with from this. And I really appreciate you taking your time today to walk us through the technical aspects of making chocolate, but the broader aspects of how we as humans interact with this marvelous fruit that comes from these exotic places and the decisions we make about it. Really appreciate it and wish you the best of luck with all your endeavors. Thank you, David. It's been such a pleasure and an honor and keep eating good chocolate. Today, my guest was my friend and college classmate, Valerie Beck, a world-renowned expert about the chocolate business. I hope you learned some interesting information about craft chocolate from her remarks and that you gained some insights about what it means to ethically manufacture a product in the modern world, especially one involving agricultural roots in our complex global economy. For upcoming episodes, I expect to have more interviews with other notable voices around Texas and the country, with a special focus on continuing issues arising about our government's response to the COVID pandemic and the litigation involving Texas's anti-abortion statute, as well as Roe v. Wade itself. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.